You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with the co-founder and managing partner at Threespoke. Threespoke provides balanced liquidity solutions for the stakeholders of leading growth stage private technology companies, utilizing an innovative finance and structure combining attractive features of debt and equity. On this week's episode, we talk about what should people know about secondaries and the private markets? How do investors do their due diligence on these private companies? What is the concept of balanced liquidity solutions for stakeholders of private technology companies? And in the past, what have GPs and LPs done for liquidity? This and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. So let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Ian, thank you for taking the time to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, your background, what you're doing right now is absolutely incredible. For our audience, can you give our audience a little bit of information of your career up until this point before we start diving into the questions? Sean, thanks for having me. Uh, exciting to be part of the Silicon Valley podcast. Uh, really opportune time considering our market space. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. My background, clearly from my accent, you can tell that I, I didn't grow up here in the US. I often get asked if it's Boston, but it's not. Uh, I grew up in South Africa. I studied there as a, a CPA. So I uh, started my career with Ernst & Young at the time, EY, and worked in the audit departments, in the audit department of EY, and realized pretty quickly after doing that for three, four years that I did not want to spend my time auditing. I obviously respect the profession, but it wasn't where I was going to find my career path or where I was going to find my enjoyment. So I'd always wanted to travel internationally. I hadn't had the opportunity. South Africa is at the bottom end of Africa. It's hard to get around. And my, my family didn't really have the means. And so I decided to go to London in the UK. So I had a buddy who I knew had a place over there, phoned him up and said, hey, can I sleep on your couch for a couple of weeks? He said, sure. I went over and I was there for the next sort of two odd years. It was an exciting time. It was the 90s. It was the internet bubble in the late 90s. It was Y2K. So there was a lot of interesting things going on. I ended up spending my time in the derivatives departments of a lot of the big investment banks that most people sort of know that, that are on Wall Street today. And I had the opportunity to work on both the equity side and the fixed income side, and then did a little bit of the treasury desk as well. So I got a really interesting perspective of the finance world in a really exciting time. The derivatives markets were just sort of exploding at that time. And there were actually some big blowups and some banks went under because of their big derivative positions. And so it was very interesting for me. But at the same time, the internet bubble was an exciting time and there were a lot of people raising a lot of money. My flatmate raised $10 million from a US business. We'd been talking about doing things forever. I said, okay, it's time. And so I went back to South Africa and I raised some angel funding and started a fintech business. And that business was, we built a technology platform that today would be best described as either OneDrive, Box, Dropbox. And we developed that back in, in 2000, 2001, but we built it over dial-up modems. So if you remember those modems, we so it was a little bit before its time. It was a great business, a good lesson, right? Is that sometimes you can have a great idea. You can just be a little early, but we transitioned and did some other things. I eventually ended up exiting that business after about eight years and joined Deutsche Bank to help build out their derivatives business in South Africa. With, there was an institutional component to that, helping the fund managers, but there was a smaller component, which was building out the retail derivatives business, which today most people would 
understand as exchange trader funds or ETFs. So we launched some of the first ETFs in South Africa. We also were a market maker for listed options. So if anybody's ever bought or sold a call or put option, we were the guys that actually listed a lot of those and market made those and priced those and traded those. So we did a lot of that and I did that for a while. And then we decided to leave South Africa. It's a wonderful place. Love it. It's just a difficult place to live with a family. It's got some emerging manager, uh, emerging market sort of components to it. And we decided we wanted to come to the US. And we were fortunate enough, a longer story, to, to get over here and get a job. And I was in the private wealth management business for, for a number of years, both at Deutsche Bank and then at JP Morgan, at w- which point I met my now partner, Steve Gold. And Steve was operating in, in what we do today in Three Spoke and, and in our structured liquidity solutions. We did a deal or two together and worked out great. It was very opportune and there were some transitions Steve was going through and we decided we would partner. And that was the beginning of Three Spoke and we've been doing that for, I don't know, the last sort of you know, five, six years now. And it's been going great just in the process of raising our next fund. So I'm sure we could expand on that, but that's a crazy version. Okay, so you planted the seed. Why don't you tell our listeners what Three Spoke does? And then after, I'm really curious because we've had a lot of people on the show that were in Silicon Valley during that 2000, that dot-com crash. But I don't think there's ever, in fact, I actually am positive, there's never been anyone on the show that was in London or Europe or, or really outside during that time that could share their story. So I'd love to hear more about also what was the environment like that in the European tech market during that huge crash in the valley? Sure. Well, let me start with Three Spoke. So from a Three Spoke perspective, we say we do structured liquidity solutions for growth equity assets. And what they, what that what does that mean? Well, we essentially offer people who own growth equity assets, we can talk about that in a minute, an opportunity to get some liquidity, but not be required to sell their position. So many people know about the secondary market and the ability to go and sell your shares your private company shares. And that's important differentiator. We only focus on private market assets. So we don't do any public market equity. It's really private market assets. And there are sort of two broad use cases and maybe five sub-use cases that might help everybody. So the, the, the broad use cases is we think about taking risk in either a single asset or a multiple assets. And single assets, think about a company. Somebody has shares in a private company. They started a company. They were employed at a company. And or they bought shares in preferred or common equity in a company. And so now they need some liquidity and they don't want to sell because they think that this company is going to double or triple over the next couple of years, but they would like to get some liquidity today. So they come to us and we offer them an opportunity to get some liquidity and we take their shares as collateral. So that's sort of use case one. The second use case is some people have options in these companies and those options either expire if they leave the company. And they need to come up with the strike price or the taxes to exercise those options. Otherwise, they lose their shares. So we will provide them liquidity to do that. Or there's sometimes a tax benefit of exercising your options early because a uh, longer conversation, but sometimes you can convert the gain in the value of your options or the underlying shares from paying income tax on that gain to paying capital gains tax. And so sometimes you need some money in order to pay the strike and to pay the, the taxes in order to come out of pocket. So we, we started with that. We still do that today. It's a big part of our business. But the other component is on the multi-asset side. And what we've seen is a huge demand from what we would call either individuals or family offices that have become investors, angel investors or preferred round investors in early stage companies. And they've been holding these positions for three, four, five years. And now they're looking for some liquidity against that position again, similar to the owners of the common stock. These guys generally have maybe preferred equity 
sometimes common, but they also don't want to sell because they believe there's upside, but they've got maybe other opportunities to do something with the money. And so they want to almost sort of what we don't, it's not a loan, but it looks like getting some liquidity against these, uh, their positions as collateral. So we do that. Mostly we think of those as sort of limited partners in funds. Sometimes they have that same. So if you might hold multiple positions or you're a limited partner where you've made commitments to a fund manager who's managing these assets for you, but you have these limited partner interests and you similarly want to get liquidity against those. We do that and we'll take those as collateral. And then on the last sort of component is there are other fund managers like Threespoke who are managing these funds. They angel investors, they angel fund managers, but they also have liquidity needs either to help their funds and their limited partners in order to get liquidity inside the fund and provide them with some distributions out of the fund like that, that the limited partners are looking for, or maybe to leverage their current position to do, to invest in a follow-on round in one of their best performing assets. So that we do that. And then similarly, some people don't know this, but there's when you run a fund, the limited partners want you to put in your own general partner or fund manager money into the fund. And so sometimes you're having to do that before you've actually generated any of this carried interest. And so sometimes we can help general partners fund their carried interest or give them a loan against their embedded carried interest. So there's a lot in what I just described, but all of what I've just described is really just a liquidity solution to somebody who has today what we think of as a growth equity asset, a business that maybe is growing really fast, it's doing really well, but it's maybe not yet profitable, it's not yet cash flow positive. And so there's a limited market space for that. We love those assets and that's where we end up providing liquidity. So I'm almost, let's defer the second question part about London for a little while. So stay on, on this. The companies you're mostly talking, are they mostly Silicon Valley unicorn companies or are these tiny little pre-seed companies? Like what size does the company have to be for an, an organization, a group like yourself or fund and their position for there to be any interest? So there's the answer for the market. And then I think there's an answer for three spoke. I think liquidity solutions or secondary market for private equity assets broadly defined as businesses that are making a profit or a cash flow positive are fairly robust. They've been around for a while, particularly in businesses that are at the top end of the middle market or above. And everybody has a different definition, but think about businesses that are doing 500 million in revenue and above. There's And they're private equity, they're profitable. There's a market that's been around for a while. And while it's not as big as maybe the public markets and maybe the primary markets, there is liquidity options and there's players that have been in that space for a while. And the risk profile there is different. From a three-spoke perspective, we've focused on pre-profitability, pre-cash flow positive companies. Because we think that those are the fastest growing companies in the market. We think that they're the most exciting to invest in and that you can make the most money from them. But at the same time, they come with a lot more risk in a business that's profitable, right? Because they have to continue to raise money in some cases. And sometimes before we might exit a position, there might be another round of funding that's necessary. So that's what we focus on, right? As a general rule, do we look at some assets that are more private equity? Yes. But as a general rule, 90% of what we look at is growth equity. On the early stage nature of it is how early will we go? Our focus from a three-spoke perspective is we don't take concept risk. So if the business hasn't yet proven that it has a market and it has customers, and more specifically, it hasn't proven at scale that it has customers. And we define scale as if you can get to 30 million in revenue, you probably have some people who are buying your product. It's still to be determined if you can now sort of execute from a growth perspective and get to profitability. But we feel that's the very low end of our entry point around that 30 million. We've done one or two deals where we thought that there was a nuanced reason to go early. But as a general rule, that's what we're looking for. Straight down the middle of the fairway for us it tends to be about 100 million plus in revenue is businesses where we'll start to get interested. 
But, you know, we've done deals with billion or three billion or five billion in revenue. So it's just that they're not profitable yet. So I think that's important. I mentioned we like high growth companies, particularly if they're not profitable, you need them to be growing fast in order to get to profitability. And we tend to like high gross margin businesses because if they're not profitable, you need high gross margins to make it profitable. And so we tend to focus on technology enabled businesses currently and or portfolios with technology enabled businesses. And we tend to like businesses that have a strong capital or institutional capital syndicate behind them. So where there's a strong venture capital, institutional venture capital is already in there. And we like that because we operate in the secondary market, we need to rely on some of these other institutional partners to help us manage these businesses and work with some of these founders in order to get the business to profitability. So I think that, and then the last thing I'd say is we're not like a venture capital partner where we want to be in these positions for 10 years. Our general hold period, we want to be in somewhere between two and four years. Maybe we can stretch a little bit longer. Maybe we can be a little shorter, but you know, that's sort of our time horizon. And so that profile of business that meets all of those criteria is a perfect fit for us. Like if it doesn't meet one, maybe we get comfortable, but that tends to be where we spend our time. Okay, let's close the loop on the London during the crash of Silicon Valley dot-com crash. What was that experience like? Well, first of all, it's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, as I mentioned to you, it was in the 90s and it's 20, 30 years on. So my recollection is probably a bit faded. I'm getting old now. So yeah, it's hard to recall specifically. But what I would tell you was that most of the money, at least when we were in London, and particularly in venture world, was still coming from the US, right? So the US was driving that opportunity set, and particularly for entrepreneurs who wanted to go out and start businesses and raise capital. And so I'd, I think the best analogy I can give you is one of my flatmates, very smart guy, and he's now, he's still working in private equity very successfully in the UK. But he was, we were all in our early mid twenties and he managed to go out and raise with another partner and friend of ours, a $10 million to start up their fund or mini fund and, and get going. And he had worked in the investment banks, but he'd never been in a private equity firm himself. And that was kind of unusual for a 25-year-old to basically be given $10 million as seed capital to go and start a fund when you hadn't really raised a fund before. And you you were you only like four or five years into your own career. So there was definitely a lot of opportunity for a lot of people to be raising money. And we all saw that the biggest one was, well, how were you valuing these businesses? And that was ultimately the unwinding of dot-com world was just people just couldn't figure out how, they, how these businesses were going to make revenue and make money even though they had users. And so it was still early for me, but at the same time, it meant that there was a huge opportunity for people like myself or other entrepreneurial-minded individuals to go out and raise money. And, and I feel that started the catalyst for many of the technology and much of the technology that we've got today. Even though a lot of people lost some money and overvalued things because they didn't understand it, it still was the catalyst for a lot of the innovation that we've seen today. And I think that's my view on that is, is that's the way the world works, right? Sometimes you've got to, you've got to do things. It's got to break before it really settles down and becomes what it's ultimately going to become. So in summary, long time ago, it was a very exciting time and it was a great opportunity for a young entrepreneurial individual who wanted to go and raise money and try and help other people invest in a business that could make their money too. 
back then, were there any of these solutions that you're talking about now, or there wasn't any at that time? Currently, these solutions, how long have they actually been available to people? Well, I guess the answer is more on a mainstream where you've got people that are doing this programmatically, like we do at 3Spark, where this is our business. I think, when did that start first? When were there people that potentially provided liquidity against private market assets? I think that goes back longer, and, and that's harder to monitor or to get a sense of when that happened. But I think, at least from a 3Spark perspective, and I give a lot of credit to my partner, Steve, who could arguably be one of the, the godfathers of the secondary market in venture from a global perspective, for sure from a US perspective, it was really sort of around 2010, 2011, where there was, it was the, the time of Facebook and Google, and there was a lot of individuals now had a huge amount of wealth being tied up in these fast-growing companies, and they were looking to monetize some of that wealth and were looking for alternatives. And I think that kick-started the the secondary market where people started saying, hey, maybe we'd like to get access to some of this. I think it was really 2010 where you could start to sell and maybe start to what looks like get some, like almost borrow or look to get some liquidity using your shares as collateral. It's really been 10, maybe 12 years, I think, where it's been more robust and, and more specifically in the last five years. I think if you go back five years ago from here, so you look at 2015, 2016, there were very few people that were still doing this particularly in growth equity. Now there's more players in it. I think there's more opportunities, even though I think it's dried up a little bit with some non-institutional programmatic investors that came into the market who's buying common stock in these private companies without any information. We've seen a lot of them disappear from the market. And maybe that's a good thing, right? Because they were maybe making the, the best decisions. I think that's what traded up a lot of the pricing. But yeah, so I think if you bifurcate the market, maybe probably 10 to 12 years old in growth equity, think five to six years in the beginning, less players, a little bit more nascent. In the last you know, six years, particularly in the last three years, it's become a lot more players have come into the market, a lot more capital. It's a lot more known now. There's a lot of investment bankers like yourself who understand these, they can tell their clients about it. We get a lot more referrals, most of our business comes from personal referrals. We're not really doing a lot of outreach ourselves. We're inundated with deal flow. So the market is definitely more knowledgeable now than it used to be. What do you think people either one should know or have maybe misconceptions about the secondary and private markets? Well, what should they know? Well, or maybe what should they know or because there's so many people sitting on, on shares and they have no idea, at least, I mean, even here in Silicon Valley, they don't know the options out there. So what would someone sitting on some of these shares, how would you sit down with them at first and just kind of explain what they can do, what they can't do, what's out there, like a, one, a lesson 101 on it? Lesson 101. Well, maybe I should start by just sort of differentiating quickly between the private markets and the public markets and the secondary versus the primary markets, because I think that sort of drives some of the other context that will be important. So as you mentioned, look, the secondary market in growth equity, as if, if we focused on that, it's an exciting opportunity now because there's so many more opportunities for both buyers and sellers, right? Or liquidity seekers and liquidity providers. So I think that's for sure the case. I think what's important to differentiate between the private markets, which is where most of these people are going to have their shares or their options, versus the public markets. And the other important thing is that if you compare public versus private, at least by some of the reference data we look at, private markets have grown 14 times faster or 14 times bigger, maybe better said, 14 times bigger today than they were 20 years ago versus the public markets were only four times bigger. So the opportunity sets in the private markets and the amount of people that have assets either own them or used to own them 
is a lot bigger today than it used to be. So there's more going on. And so that means there's more opportunities if you're looking for it. But contrasting public to private, right? Information is generally available in the public market and it's not in the private. The word says it in itself. It's private for a reason. The companies that are private do not have to provide the information. And that's really important for people. And that's also important for sellers. If you're a buyer, you kind of want to have the information to make an informed decision. And so it's one of the biggest constraints in the private markets and particularly in the secondary markets. But that creates a lot of asymmetry between buyers and sellers, and that creates a lot of opportunity, right? Particularly for investors and interested in looking at opportunities because they think that maybe there's an information advantage potentially in order for them to do something. So that's important for people on either side to be aware of is this information asymmetry and how much information do they have or do they expect somebody else to have in order to make a decision, in order to execute a transaction? And that, as you can imagine, that lack of clarity comes with additional risk and has an impact on pricing. So you may not always get the price that you think it's worth because there's information asymmetry. And so somebody's going to create a, want a discount for taking that additional risk. So I think people should be aware of that. From a secondary perspective, you need to understand that if you're a primary investor, so you are investing in a preferred equity round to fund the startup of these companies, you generally are interacting directly with company management and or the fund manager in order to get access to the information. And so you have a direct relationship. And that's why it's called the primary market because you have a primary relationship with the ultimate person who is managing these assets. The secondary markets is one removed, right? You often don't have direct relationship, although that is changing, right? There are many secondary market transactions in today's environment that are led by the companies or led by the fund managers. And you're seeing that's an ex- huge expansion, another topic which we can get into in a minute. But you're seeing tender offers in sales, you're seeing corporate liquidity programs, you're seeing a lot of general partner or fund manager led liquidity solutions by selling portions of the share. So the secondary market is growing. But it's important to differentiate between whether this primary versus secondary market relationship. So with that context, if you are an individual, I guess the first thing you have to know is what ownership do you have? Do you have options and are they vested or unvested? Do you have shares? Okay. And are they restricted or unrestricted? Or do you own a position in a portfolio of assets? And depending on what your asset is, that is going to dictate who potentially is a buyer or a liquidity provider to you. Because all investors are not made equal and not all of them look at all of these scenarios that we might look at three spots. So there's some investors out there that you've seen there are secondary market brokerage platforms where there's probably more than five now, maybe 10, where you can go and you can go and see, you can put your shares on these platforms and you can get a, some somebody can make an offer to, to buy those shares, right? Or at a certain price. So there's a market there. There's that option. There's a number of providers that do what Three Spoke does on the option exercise where they'll finance the options, where they'll provide you the liquidity to finance your options for the tax benefits or because you're leaving. So there are some providers out there. There's maybe five or so that we're aware of, right? They do it programmatically. So you should look for those if that's what you've got. If you're a fund manager in a portfolio, then some of that, then there's other partners that might look at your liquidity. So you definitely have to understand the assets. The other thing that's really important is to understand what size position that you have. So again, not all investors are made equal. Some people might be interested in buying something for $100,000 or making giving you liquidity for $100,000. And other people say, look, I'm not going to get out of bed unless it's $50 million. And so you have to really understand how big is your position. And that's going to define who your opportunity set is. So I think that is important for somebody to do is just for them to understand what do they have 
and how big is it? Because that's going to determine. The other thing I think is really important is to understand the restrictions and what they can or can't do. We often get people coming to us and they haven't even read their shareholders uh, agreements. So when you get shares or you get options, there is an agreement and it tells you what you can and can't do. And so you should be, you should read that and know what is allowed legally and what is maybe accommodated by the company. The last thing I'd say on this, and you may want to explore this, which is we see with the, especially in the last couple of years, and with the demand for this liquidity because valuations were so extended, we saw a number of people doing transactions in the secondary market that maybe weren't legally allowed, but the company or the whoever the owner of these shares or the whoever was a party to the agreement was sort of looking the other way and saying, look, it's not really allowed, but we're not going to chase you down. As long as it doesn't affect us and you're not going to put us under pressure or ask us for information, you guys just carry on. That's a very different scenario than making sure you've actually done it legally. And it's fine because as long as the parties are all in agreement, it it works. But that's another part, I think, which in the secondary market, people should be aware of. Well, let's double click on that. Let's go a little bit deeper on. Well, one, I'm wondering if you've ever been in a transaction where suddenly out of nowhere, you see the agreement and go, wait a second. They have rights of first refusal or wait, this is not going to be as smooth as you thought. Or have you heard of anything and obviously leave out names and all that where it was, hey, this is not so much the gray zone, more that black zone of this transaction that, hey, there's some red flags here. Absolutely. Look, from a three-spoke perspective, we maybe approach things a little differently. We are very sensitive to the legal agreements for obvious reasons, right? We're running a, a professional institutional quality fund and we have investors that are expecting us to do certain things. And so we spend a lot of time making sure we understand what the restrictions are on whatever the underlying collateral is. But having said that, I would tell you that particularly over the last three years where the markets got pretty frothy, as we all have experienced and valuations got extended and everybody was looking for access to something, people definitely let down their diligence requirements. And so we saw a number of people that maybe weren't as focused on things and maybe rightfully so, because maybe they knew that the companies were allowing it and it wasn't really a big deal. But yes, so the short answer is, have we seen it? Does it still happen? Yes. I would say that it's less frequent in institutional partners or institutional liquidity providers, maybe like Facebook, than it is in individuals and or third party brokers like are out there, somebody said, oh, I know so, and I'll introduce you and I want to take a commission or the brokers. Like I think the brokers, and this is no you know, disrespect to you guys as investment bankers, but they're interested in matching two parties and getting a deal done. And, and we need that. The market needs that. But at the same time, they don't have to own the legal agreements and the legal risks once the deal's done. Their deal is to get the deal done. And I think what's happened is that the individuals on the other side, because you had a lot of individuals, a lot of that weren't knowledgeable of the markets that were just looking to get access to these companies, a lot of family offices that were looking and they hadn't seen something go bad and experienced something go bad, they were happy to take that risk. And so I think We saw a lot of that. Whether that's going to persist, I would say that it's going to probably be less than what we've seen in the past just because there's probably less people doing it. And it's less relevant in common stock. Let me say, it's more prevalent in common stock, which is where a lot of the frothiness came from, and less prevalent in preferred stock because the people who are looking to transact in preferred stock tend to be a little bit more institutional. They have a lot more checks and balances that they have to meet in order to actually execute a transaction. So I think, yes, does it happen? It happened a lot in the last three years. I think it's going to persist. Yes, but I don't think at least over the course of the next couple of years, probably not to the same frequency. 
from a global perspective, where do you see the appetite for this? Are most of the inquiries for Silicon Valley startups with investors, family offices over in Europe, Southeast Asia, or institutionals from Middle East? Where's their appetite for all this? We would say, look, majority of our business is the US because one, look, it's, there's so much volume here and we understand the legal environment well. And we know how we're going to perfect our interest in this collateral. And if something goes wrong, how do we go? Where do we go? And we can do it cost efficiently, right? Once you start going into different jurisdictions and once you start going into non-first world countries, as you can appreciate, things get a little bit more murky. So I think from our perspective, look, we have executed deals outside of the US and we continue to be interested in those, but they have to meet the highest standard and they come with extra cost and diligence costs and execution costs. So these are factors, right? But we have got some non-US counterparties in some non-US operated businesses. It's, as I said, there are a lot of nuances and we expect other things in order to do those deals. And we'll continue to look at those. And for us, we see that as a big expansion opportunity for our business and the ability to deploy larger amounts of capital, particularly as we look to raise larger and large amounts of institutional capital for our own funds. That is a growth opportunity for us, particularly in the first world countries, Europe. We've looked at a a number of deals in Europe and the Europe deals are in some cases getting as big as some of the US size deals and the quality of the companies in some cases are as robust as the US companies. So there's definitely opportunity there. Obviously, once you start going, as I said, into more of emerging markets where the legal system is maybe less proven or more costly, it's going to be tougher. I think we've talked about maybe using local partners and maybe at some point we'll expand three spoke into those areas and jurisdictions. But we tend to, we'll look at those businesses, but we look to do more of a structured transaction where we might look to still get some US collateral in order to make sure that we feel comfortable with the transaction. But I don't see that at least over the next three to five years being a big focus for us because there's just so much opportunity here in the US and in Europe. So I think there'll be less demand, but there'll be other players that will want to do what we do or similar to what Three Spoke does. And maybe they'll see the opportunity set and be able to manage the risk in those jurisdictions. So we'll probably see some growth in those areas over the coming years. Maybe not from some of the US players who are, there's not enough capital just to solve the current liquidity problem in the US and in Europe. So I think it's going to be limited. With these companies being private, how do either you or the investors, how do they do due diligence on them? How do they decide whether it's a good bet or not? Well, again, I think the answer is different, right, for everybody. We continue to be surprised by how little diligence some investors are prepared to do in order to get a deal done. But, you know, everybody has their own underwriting requirements or underwriting guidelines, and and we don't judge anybody. We think as long as somebody's happy to invest, we think it's good for the market. From a three-spoke perspective, you know, we won't do a deal unless we have enough information that we feel that we can rely on in order to value both the enterprise or the portfolio and order to then value the underlying position that we have, whether it be common stock, preferred equity, limited partners, interest, whatever our underlying collateral is, we need to have enough information. And so many of our deals are done under non-disclosure agreements with the company and or engaging with the management teams just because of our relationships or maybe because of who our counterparty is or because of the size of the transaction or maybe it's a corporate program where it's facilitated by the company. So there are a lot of different reasons and there's a lot of different ways that we get access to the information. But I think it all comes back 
to a three-spoke perspective, you don't ask me up front, but so we often get asked, why do you call the business three-spoke? I mean, it seems like a kind of unusual name. And we said, well, one, <laughs> you know, try and start a company and, and come up with a new name. Like most of them have been taken and particularly in the finance industry. And then you've got to try and get a website. So that's hard. So we wanted to come up with something that was reflective of our sort of technology focus. But more specifically to this conversation, we believe that there's three spokes to the wheel or three partners to a transaction. And the three partners are us and our investors, our counterparty or the owner of this asset, and then the underlying company or the portfolios that are the people that are actually the businesses and the people that are running those businesses. And for us, we need all three of those folks to be aligned. And so we don't like to do deals where the company is not aware of what's going on or the underlying portfolio manager is not aware. And when that happens, we lose a lot of deals and there's certain companies that won't facilitate that. Okay, fine. We're just not going to do those ones. But that's our approach to it. I would say that not everybody has that approach. And so if a lot of your listeners to the podcast are the owners of these shares, it's still possible to get a deal done, even if people can't get access to the information. I would say to my earlier comment, I think it's going to be less likely, particularly in smaller transaction sizes in the current market and in the next couple of years than it was possible over the last sort of two to three years because of the market. And Ian, before wrapping up, are there any stories or examples that you could share with us, leaving out names, of course, of just either people or companies or you know things that you've worked on? I mean, people love stories. So if you can share anything, that'd be fantastic. Without mentioning names, we have a number of individual counterparties. So individuals who have started businesses or are currently working in businesses where they love their business. They do not want to sell their shares, but they've come to us and said, look, guys, like, I've got a family. I've been all in on this company. I haven't been earning that much money. Like, I just need to buy a house so that my family can live in this house. I'm paper rich. Or, or my kids are older now. I've got to send them to school or college and there's costs. And so I think people should know that we've had a number of people come to us like with that, which saying, look, I don't want to sell, but like I really have got to solve these life problems because your life operates on a different timeline than what your business does. And you should be okay with the knowledge that you're not giving up on the business just because you need some liquidity today. And so I could tell you numerous stories where people have come to us and said, hey man, like, can you just give us some money for college? So you know, I think that's a general theme. The other one is, look, we have a number of stories where some people came to us and said, look, I've just left. We had one counterparty. He said, I just left at the beginning of the month. It's now middle of the month. He's got two weeks left. He needs $2 million to exercise his options. And he said, look, guys, if I don't exercise my options, the value of these shares is worth 15 million. I'm going to lose it all. I mean, that that's a problem, right? Oh, for and there is no planning on his part of, uh, in I, this? I, I'm, I'm just telling you that we all think that everybody plans, but we all know that we also get busy with our lives, right? And then all of a sudden, you now realize, now I'm in a bind. So I would tell people, make sure you understand what you have as early as you have, as early as you can. But then also know that, look, they came to us and we had previously passed on this company for various reasons, but we actually, we just don't like to see people lose value that they've helped create. And so we executed a transaction in two weeks, right? For it was a $2 million transaction. So I guess the point being is that this stuff happens and there's a lot of lessons that people don't actually know. I mean, this individual had a $15 million position valued at the time, right? So just that's, you think it's surprising, but look yourself in the mirror and maybe that's you. So, so be aware, like if you have that. I'm what else? I'm just picturing that guy that's like got the grocery list. He's like eggs, celery, $2 million option execution. <laughs> just like going exactly. down the list. 
Exactly, exactly. And then, look, I mean, the other thing I would tell you is I don't have a specific example for you, but there is a huge liquidity problem in the market right now because the IPO market has been closed for a while and there's this huge pent-up demand for liquidity. A lot more money being raised in the private markets and less money getting realized because we've been shut down for a couple of years, COVID, and then the sell-off in the market and with interest rates, et cetera, and all the other economic stuff going on. So there's a huge pent-up demand. What we're starting to see is a lot of LPs, so people that were invested in funds, in venture funds, they were expecting to get liquidity coming out of these funds like now, and they're not. And it's going to be a little while. And so we're seeing both individual family office and institutional investors having a problem now because they've made commitments to new funds based on the fact that they were going to get some exit and liquidity from the current funds. So there's this huge, what some people refer to as the denominator effect. And we're actually getting told that there's certain limited partners out there that may even be at risk of defaulting on their commitments to the fund managers, which creates a massive issue for the market. But what that means is that I think you're going to see more stories like that, but more stories the general part partners are trying to solve that. And we're trying to solve that for the market. So there's a lot of people providing liquidity into this market to help general partners extend their funds, make some distributions to the limited partners. But there's a huge opportunity set there. So if people haven't explored that before and they are in that position, it's coming. It's probably going to be exacerbated over the course of the next year or two. So be aware that those stories, we've started to hear them. We've started to be part of some of them. I see that as part of the future. And with that, I think that's a good spot to, to end the show on. Ian, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? Probably our website, which is threespokecapital.com. So the numeric three and then S-P-O-K-E capital.com. On there, they can get a sense of what we do and what kind of companies we've invested in. And then there's also a contact form on there, which we monitor daily. So we will be responsive uh, if people reach out to us. So that would be one place. The other place is we are on LinkedIn and a lot of our partners are there. So if, if you want to reach out to us there and, and then we do sort of make some updates there and then on X or we, we, we keep some contact there so people can find us there. I'm still not sure what to say now. Like you'd always say, I'll tweet this. And now it's like, I'll X this. I'm just, I don't know where to go with that. But okay, we're going to have all that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, please go to the SiliconValleyPodcast.com to check out this episode and our, our library of episodes and what we're up to. And when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley Podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Love to have a conversation. And with that, Ian, I got to thank you for taking the time to be on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.